So um, I'm going to get to the subject of Martin and Katerina Bombora's marriage, which how great is this? I loved being able to use this. Um, I'm from Mississippi, so I'm a huge Elvis fan. Um, but first, I want to spend just a moment telling you how I come at this subject, um, because it's very personal for me. So I am an ordained woman in the Episcopal Church, a fact that I will argue um, to anyone anywhere would not be possible without the Protestant Reformation. Um, I just want to be very clear about that. Uh, when we lived in New York City, it was when everyone was watching Mad Men, and people would have Mad Men parties, which was very weird to me. They would be like, you know, dress up like your favorite Mad Men character and come over, and I'm like, great, so I'll put on a secretary outfit, and we'll hang out and have a party. So, whenever, sorry, that's my own personal diatribe about Mad Men. But whenever people say, like, what would it be like without the Protestant Reformation? I'm like, we actually know what it would be like. We have a track for that. It's called Catholicism, right? We still wouldn't be ordaining priests with ovaries. So, I just want to start there. Without the Reformation, I would be in a convent, um... I, I would probably have been kicked out of the convent by now, but I would have tried to have gone into a convent because when I was a small child in Mississippi and I had to write what I wanted to be when I grew up in the blank, I would write nun and housewife. Seriously. Which has worked out for me. I'm kind of a nun now and I'm kind of a housewife because of the Protestant Reformation. So... I really want to talk with you about marriage and the Reformation, specifically this marriage of Katerina and Martin Luther, because like Katie, which is what we'll call her, it's what Martin called her, I also come at this as a priest wife. So this is my husband Josh and our kids at our daughter's baptism. Um, my parents and my brother are also in the photo. Um, we have a lot of pictures like this where I like gather everyone really frantically um, and up front so we can get a picture and Josh is still in his get up and it's like a whole thing. So this is one of many, but I love everything about being married to a priest. And I believe very firmly that I stand in this incredible line of women that began with women like Katerina Von Bora who um, are at our husband's sides in ministry, and it's very pow powerful for me to think about it. Um, I love the crazy things that happen almost exclusively in church life. Um, sometimes I think the best selling pitch for going to church is that you'll never see anything as weird as you see at church. Um, so one time when I was a very young priest wife, we found out that Pentecostals were secretly worshiping in our church every morning at 6 a.m. Um, and I was the one that discovered them. Um, I opened up the door to the church and they were in the middle of a very intense healing. And I was in gym class and I was like, hey, what are y'all doing? Um, and uh, it was bad. And I also, I love the love stories that I get to see up close um, because of uh, my marriage to Josh. Um, 
when Hurricane Harvey uh, hit Houston, we had this young couple um, at our church who were really sweet, and they were on vacation. And when they were coming back into Houston, uh, we realized this was an opportunity for them to gather supplies that would be gone already for our community that we really needed. So I said to them, I just sent her a message and I said, um, we'd love it if you brought back diapers. Because I, I knew our family would need diapers. I knew other families would need diapers. And um, I thought, you know, they're this young couple. They don't have children. They're probably going to get other things that people really need. And then they showed up with $800 worth of diapers. Um, and I get to see that stuff all the time in ministry. So um, I love being a priest's wife. So I want to talk about this very important marriage of the Reformation, because I think it has a lot to say about marriage. It has a lot to say about Luther. It has a whole lot to say about grace. So I'm going to start by telling you who Martin and Katie were when they came into this marriage. And I'm going to use a clip, so get ready, from the critically acclaimed television masterpiece, The Bachelor. Um, and I'm doing it because it's funny, but also because the way that we treat the concept of romantic love, the way we dream about love, the way that we make an idol of love, has not actually changed that much. Um, we all believe, as uh, young unmarried people, that marriage will fulfill, fulfill some sort of incredible fantasy about us, right, about ourselves. We believe that married love will exist on some sort of a different plane where everything is bliss, right? But married love is brutal. It's beautiful, but it's also very brutal. It changes who we are in ways that we are ill-equipped to handle. And I say all that because our dear Martin Luther was not immune to this kind of romantic, fantastical thinking. <clears throat> As a never-been-married monk, Martin had some pretty ridiculous things to say on the subject of matrimony, specifically about women. Six years before he met Katie, he wrote this about married love, and I'm going to read the whole thing because it's so ridiculous. There are many kinds of love, but none is as fiery and hot. Y'all, that monastery must have been cold. <laughs> Nothing was as fiery and hot as the bridal love that a bride has for her groom. Again, the love is not looking for pleasure or presence, not wealth or golden rings, but rather looks at him alone. Even if he were to give her everything there was, she would disregard it all and say, I want to have you alone. And if he had absolutely nothing, she would still pay no attention to that, but want him anyway. Martin Luther tells us this is proper bridal love. <laughs> I want to mention here that there is nothing wrong with marrying a guy for wealth and gold. <laughs> the fact that my husband had health insurance and owned a house was a huge selling point for me when we were dating. So. <clears throat> but our Martin Luther was deeply in love with the idea of some hot, steamy girl, right, being deeply in love with him. <laughs> On paper, this sounds great. In practice, it's terrifying. 
Um, I actually found a woman who meets Martin's criteria. Her name is Lace, not Lacey, Lace. And she was on the 20th season of The Bachelor, which, by the way, if you want to know what's wrong with our country, there's been 20 seasons of The Bachelor. <laughs> I've watched all of them. So, um, but let me see if, can you get that clip up? I'm the only one that kissed him so far. And I am not going to let Ben forget about me. Is it awkward if I ask you for a better kiss? Yeah. We I can... know you have a lot of women to get to. I'm not going to keep you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we can do Is it weird? a better kiss. No, it's not. I mean, I think like... You're, you're thinking about it right now. Well, I think like going into this, um, my goal was to like really get to know everybody before like, because obviously like, you're gorgeous and every, like, I'm so easy to like get sucked up in the physical part of the night. Because everybody, like, you look gorgeous. Um, that you forget the, like, you know, to actually, like, take time to talk. Hi. Uh, I'm back. Just swoops up right as I want to go have a kiss with him, and he denies me. I don't look like a fool or anything. She's my favorite. I love her so much. <laughs> She was on for a long time. She's one of those you could tell that the producers were like, you can't kick her off. People are only watching for her. You've got to keep her on, right? But it, it's actually, it sounds great to have a woman who is like single-mindedly in hot bridal love with you, right? But when you meet her, it's kind of scary as hell, right? <laughs> and this is the problem for Martin. Uh, he was not going to be marrying a reality show contestant. He was going to be marrying a person. He was going to be marrying this person. Right? <laughs> um, and here is where we dive into the story of how Katie met Luther. So Katerina Von Bora was a nun. She was placed in the convent when she was six years old. We often hear this stuff and we think, oh, six-year-olds were different back then. They weren't. It was awful. Um, her dad put her there when her mom died after he remarried, which is how a lot of women ended up in convents, which is why a lot of women left convents when the Reformation happened, which is why I do not want to hear any noise about how empowered women were in convents before the Reformation. Thank you very much. I'm done with that argument. I have opinions. Okay, I digress. So Katie is a Cistercian nun, which is really sort of the most extreme order you can be. She's cloistered in a small village in Germany. Somehow, also known as the Holy Spirit, Luther's paper called Judgment on Monastic Vows, it's not a good judgment, um, is passed around her convent. So the nuns hatch a plan to escape. Because they could not just walk out of there, right? Because they were not free to leave. They had to sneak out. So on the evening of April 4th, 1525, after an Easter Eve service, so their schedule would be different, a group of nuns escaped the convent and landed on the doorstep of Martin Luther. And suddenly this is the situation, okay? Word gets around town. We actually have a letter yeah, here's a quote. We have a letter between local Wittenberg men where one has obviously heard about this wagon of women that has come to see Luther, and he's like, yo, we got babes in Wittenberg. Um, 
a wagon load of Vestal Virgins has just come to town, all more eager for marriage than for life. It's such a great quote. Uh, <laughs> he's like, yeah! Um, Martin realized immediately, obviously, that he had to get these women married off, okay? Um, and he's actually very good at matchmaking. It's amazing how quickly he, he got these women uh, married. Except for this one lady. Yeah. <laughs> she, like, turned somebody down. Like, it was, um, it, it was kind of a trial for him. So after much deliberation, after writing letters to his friends where he basically says of Katie, I cannot give this woman away, <laughs> on, on May 13, 1525, Martin marries Katie. What God did with Martin and Katie is what God does with every married couple. God takes two piles of trash and lights them on fire together <laughs> and then calls the ashes good. That's what marriage is. <laughs> it's true, though. Think about it. Um, a few weeks into his marriage, Martin seems totally stunned by what has happened to him. He writes to a friend saying of his new bride, this is like my favorite thing. I don't have this on a slide, but it's so good. There's a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. I was alone, and now there's someone else here. In bed, you wake up in the morning and see a couple of pigtails on the pillow. You can just hear him being like, I used to get up in the morning and like eat, you know, half a box of cereal out of a mixing bowl and then fart, you know? And now there's this lady, right? But very quickly, as is often true in marriage, a different kind of love emerges, a different kind of devotion. So a few years into their marriage, Martin would find himself penniless. He gave away everything they had to the poor. So he would, um, if somebody on the street ran into him randomly and said, I'm starving, I don't have anything, he would be like, wait, I have, we have this one, like, you know, chalice in the cupboard. I'm going to go get it. And he would just give it to them. I mean, he just gave and gave and gave. And he also would not take money for his published writings. So he actually wrote to a friend uh, in sort of a panic over their financial situation and said, I consume more than I take in. So his solution was to hand over all of the family finances to Katie, which is pretty astonishing. He completely trusted her, and he wrote to a friend that he was that, that Katie was much better suited for the role of finances than he was. He said, in domestic affairs, I defer to Katie. Otherwise, I am led by the Holy Ghost. In their 20 years of marriage, they would have six children, and they would go on to adopt another four. They adored being parents. Through Martin's letters, we know that their first child, Hans, started teething at seven months old. And his nickname for Hans, and I love that he had a nickname and that we know it, was Homo Vorax Ebibax, or a little man who heartily gobbles and gulps. 
<laughs> so sweet, right? He's like telling his friends about this. We know this because Martin like wrote his buddies this stuff. So talking about the little details of, of raising children is so beautiful. This messy love of being a father. We have funny vignettes from their life together. Um, Martin had been traveling and was speaking with a fellow supporter of the Reformation, actually quite a woman in her own right, a woman named um, Lady Argula von Brumbach. And they were talking about the gospel and, um, you know, talking shop. And strangely enough, you can put it up, the subject came up of nursing babies. And Lady von Brumbach wanted to share her insights. And Martin sat there and took it all in. And then he turns and he writes a letter to Katie because she's in the middle of nursing. I think it's their second daughter. Like such a dutiful husband. And he says, he says to Katie, I think it would be good if you want to stop nursing her, but gradually. And then he includes this like La Leche League, like worthy schedule of like how to wean the baby. I mean, this is amazing. It's amazing. I know plenty of men now who wouldn't do that. You know, it's amazing. Martin actually wrote in a few places about the value of a father changing a diaper. God with all his angels and creatures is smiling, not because that father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in the Christian faith. So... As much as I want to read early feminism into this, um, you really can't. Instead, we would be right to read grace in marriage. Here we are together, right? Katie and Martin raising these children, this former monk, this former nun, having all the confidence in the world, right? And no idea what they're doing, which is parenting in a nutshell. But they love each other, right? And Jesus loves them. And so Martin apparently changed some diapers. We also know that Martin and Katie lost two of their children, actually um, both girls. <clears throat> Elizabeth died as an eight-month-old baby. And in my research about this, I just wanted to point this out. Just historically, we used to have this um, this theory in, in sort of historic academic circles that is still pervasive that, oh, well, people had a lot of kids back then. It's like they weren't as sad, right, when they died. That's not true at all. We don't have any evidence for that in, in people's diaries and accounts. So I do want to say that they lost a daughter at eight months, which must have been incredibly painful. So they considered their second daughter, sweet Magdalena, who was born just a year later to be such a gift. Magdalena would die at 13 years old. And in Martin's table talks, um, we have some of his words that he would say in those, um, those final days of Magdalena's life. He said, I'd like to keep my dear daughter because I love her very much. If only our Lord God would let me. However, his will be done. Truly, nothing better can happen to her. Nothing better. Here we have both a faithful clergyman and a desperate father, right? A sinner and a saint, a priest and a dad. Desperation and consolation. A whole person, the full gamut. 
So you may be wondering why so much of my information um, comes from Luther. We only have seven letters left from Katie, and um, they were all written after Luther's death. From eyewitness accounts, we know that when Katie learned of Martin's unexpected death on February 18, 1546, that she completely fell apart. The friends who came to tell her the news described her as being terribly frightened and despondent. We know that one of the first things she expressed was grief for her children, who had lost such an incredible father. Katie actually wrote to her sister-in-law two months after Martin's death, and she said, If I had had a princedom or empire and lost it, I wouldn't have been as sad as now, when our dear Lord God has taken this dear and precious man from me, and not just from me, but from the whole world. The remarkable thing to me about this little vignette we have from Katie is that the hot bridal love, right, that Luther described six years before he met, met Katie is actually seen here in the grieving words of his widow, this sort of singular, beautiful devotion that only comes from years of marriage. Two years into marriage, um, Martin Luther wrote, to have grace and peace in marriage is a gift second only to the knowledge of the gospel. Grace and peace in marriage do not come easy, um, as I'm sure you well know if you're married or were raised by married people or divorced people. It happens after strife, tragedy, and an ocean of forgiveness. Married love gives and gives and takes and takes, just as married love has always done. But I do believe that the love between Katie and Martin was perhaps a different and new kind of love. And I believe that because it also informs the way I see my own marriage. It was a love deeply informed by grace. They never intended their love to come from their ability to do more or to be better or obviously to control everything, right? Their love did not come from questions of what was fair or who was right. It was the love that first loved Martin and Katie. It was the love that first loved us, right? It was the unrelenting, always merciful love of Jesus. It is not a pleasant coincidence that Martin Luther got married. It was God's will in his life. And for those of us who profess a faith of per pervasive grace, it was God's will in our lives too. Because in order for a theology of grace to truly be heard, marriage had to be a part of the hearing. And not some glorified version of marriage, right? But marriage as it actually exists as we know it. Women had to be taken off of these like hot bridal pedestals, right? That had to happen. Finances had to be tight. Martin had to navigate what that would look like. Children had to be birthed. This is a fuller picture of what the theology of the cross looks like. Real life lived in light of the gospel. There is no better laboratory for God's grace than that of a marriage. After all, marriage is truly the most sinful kind of relationship 
that we can have. And I don't mean the sex. Um, I mean the less exciting stuff, right? Like getting in a fight about who folds the laundry or who puts the cranky toddler to bed for the third night in a row. Marriage provides that unique opportunity to wake up in the morning with someone that you are already mad at, you know? It's amazing. Um, I think that marriage may actually be the original definition of living in sin. Um, we just flipped it. And this was the kind of marriage, the kind of love, that Martin and Katie would go on to share. These days, we tell ourselves tell ourselves lies about Christian marriage, right? This is like a whole marketplace of lies, and it's just labeled in the bookstore, Christian marriage. Um, we tell ourselves that like Christian marriage looks a certain way, and we tell ourselves that Christians uh, Christian marriage, like you read specific books. Um, what's your love language? You know, obviously. Um, Uh, Maybe if you're in a Christian marriage, you have a joint Facebook account, right? Because you've got to keep each other accountable, obviously. Um, But this is not, nor has it ever been, what Christian marriage looks like. The story of Martin and Katie's new kind of love is inherently Christian because it is a story of two sinners getting hitched. Two people who knew they were wholly sinful saved only by the redeeming love of Jesus, joining their lives together, welcoming children in the world together, creating a life against all odds. St. Paul writes of Jesus in the second letter to the Corinthians, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ May rest upon me. In the words of St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which Martin and Katie, I'm sure, knew, God's grace was sufficient for them. God's strength was made perfect in their weakness. They would rather name their shortcomings and failures than to hide them, because the merciful power of Christ rested upon the love between Katie and Martin just as it rests upon all of us. Thanks.